I'm back to introduce a friend of mine uh, who's going to be preaching to you this morning. But before I do that, I want you to know something. That, that when, we, uh, when I leave and go somewhere or something like that, uh, we don't just bring anybody to communicate God's word to you. We, we value this time uh, highly. And uh, so we bring in really good guys. My only concern is that you will like him better than you like me because he is a gifted communicator. Uh, so I wanted to introduce you to you, my friend, my professor from seminary, uh, my mentor in many ways, a, a, a man I respect a great deal, um, and a very, very gifted communicator of God's word. And not only all of that, but he was also the interim pastor here in 2014, and uh, he is back to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, would you guys do me a favor and welcome Scott Winnick? Hey, it is so great to be back at Grace Fellowship Lakewood with all of you this morning. Uh, Melanie and I haven't been here, I don't think, in, since uh, the summer of 15 when we did uh, Pastor John's uh, induction as senior pastor here. So this is just a huge privilege for us. Uh, John had... Uh, emailed me a couple of months ago and said that he was going out of town and asked me if I'd be willing to come over and share. And I said, let me pray about it. Yes. So uh, yeah, we're uh, really, really grateful to be here. And obviously there's a lot of changes in terms of the facility and uh, also uh, just in terms of uh, worship and worship style. I think we ought to give Johnny and the team a big hand in terms of the way they lead us in worship. Uh, as you know, we live in a culture that really, really, really likes stories. Star Wars, The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Well, in my opinion, the greatest storyteller of all time was Jesus. He loved to tell stories, or what they call in the New Testament, parables. And so this morning, what I want to do is walk us through a parable that Jesus told, but to do that, we need to get it in its context. And this story uh, comes in Luke 18 that we're going to look at, but the context starts back in Luke 17. So I'm going to try to read this through from the screen up here. And Johnny, can I just press this and move ahead? I'm hoping this will work. There we go. So this is God's word. Let's pay close attention. Luke 17, starting in verse 20, and we'll read through verse 37, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll see what the Lord would teach us here. Uh, Jesus is teaching here, and here's what Luke says was happening. Uh, Once on being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, "Uh, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Uh, Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Uh, Don't go running off after them. Uh, For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. 
people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. Uh, Where, Lord, they asked, and he replied, where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Well, I realize that sounds like kind of a depressing section of Scripture. What Jesus is doing is talking about when he will return and what's going to take place on planet Earth. And the parable we're going to look at will fit into that. So let's pray together, and then we'll see what the Lord would teach us from Luke 18. Father, thanks so much for the privilege that uh, we have to be here today to worship you, to serve you, Lord, to love you. I thank you so much for everybody that's here and for Grace Fellowship Lakewood. I just pray that you would continue to keep your hand of mercy and compassion and grace on this church, that you would just use it in a great, great, great way to bless everybody that's here and also to bless people in the community. And Lord, now as we look into your word, I ask that by your spirit that you might enlighten our minds and Lord, you might touch our hearts through this text We thank you so much for the privilege we have of studying the scripture, and we ask now that you would use this time to bless us and help us, and we pray this in the great name of Jesus, amen. Well, one of the key elements of life for Christ followers is the practice of prayer. Um, If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been in church for a while, and you've read portions of the Bible, especially the New Testament, you know that prayer is a key theme. Uh, In Matthew chapter 6 and Luke 11, we see that Jesus taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told by the Apostle Paul that we should pray at all times. Uh, In the book of Acts, we see the early church consistently in prayer, And some dramatic things happened as a result. And if you're not a believer, and that may be true for some of you here today, you came with family or friends and you're not a believer, and if so, that's fine. We're really, really glad you're here. Even unbelievers often pray. The uh, TV documentarist Ken Burns did a series on Vietnam about five or six years ago. And in one particular episode, he was quoting a letter from a soldier who was writing home to his best friend. And he said, I'm an atheist, except when the shooting starts. And then, like everybody else, I pray like crazy. It would seem as if prayer, uh, the practice of reaching out to God for his help and his comfort, and his presence is hardwired into you and me. And yet, despite the fact that we have this natural propensity to pray, uh, sometimes we find it difficult to do that consistently. Uh, Maybe at some point in your life, the following or something like it has happened to you. 
Uh, you went to a retreat where they're focusing on prayer, or you read a new book by a favorite author on prayer, or you heard a really, really good sermon on prayer, and you got really, really pumped up to pray. And so you started to pray fervently and consistently and passionately. But then it seems like certain things happen, and slowly and surely, the enthusiasm you had for prayer a few weeks back begins to slow down, and then eventually your prayer life began to grind to a halt. Uh, My observation and experience tells me that almost every follower of Christ experiences something like what I've just described. I know that I have experienced that. And what I've just described and what we've all encountered, if that's happened to us, is what I call prayer bumps. Uh, Prayer bumps are like speed bumps in a parking lot. Uh, They cause us to go slow and they cause us to become cautious. And in the case of prayer, uh, prayer bumps eventually cause us to lose our spiritual passion. Now, if by some chance you've experienced something like that over the last year, you've experienced some prayer bumps along the way. Uh, What would come to mind? Well, let me list what I think are some common prayer bumps that followers of Christ experience. Uh, First of all, prayer begins to slow down when life gets calm. I mean, I think this is human nature. When the bank account's full, when the job's satisfying, the family's doing really, really well, we have this tendency to slow down in our prayers because life's good. But when the storms rage, when the waves are breaking over the deck, everybody prays like crazy. Oh, you know this, when the phone rings in the middle of the night, or the boss says that the job is up for grabs, or the doctor says the prognosis does not look too good. All of us pray fervently, repeatedly. We even pray desperately. But when the storm passes and life normalizes, Oftentimes, we begin to slow down in our prayers. That's the first prayer bump. The second prayer bump that sometimes causes us to quit relating to God on an intimate basis is guilt or shame. On occasion, I've talked with people when they said they were really struggling with prayer, and I said, okay, 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 let's back up just a little bit. When did this become a problem? And they'll say things like, well, when I started to get back into partying really, really hard, or they'll say, you know, I got really, really busy at work because all I was concerned about was making more and more money. Or they'll confess, I started spending too much time surfing the internet and I started to go to places that I shouldn't go to. See, sometimes old-fashioned sin is enough to create a gap in our relationship with God. And once that gap gets bigger and bigger, it slows down our desire to pray, and it may even cause us to stop. Uh, There's a third prayer bump that causes us to drift away from consistent prayer. And this one's called discouragement or disillusionment, even despair. I mean, I think at one time or another... All of us have probably struggled with this. Uh, We prayed for a family member to be healed, but they weren't. We prayed for the marriage to survive, but it didn't. We prayed for the business to thrive, 
but it failed. We prayed for our kids to come to church, and they still have not. For some, this becomes more than a prayer bump. It's a prayer stopper. I mean, we start to think, well, if heaven doesn't listen, if God doesn't care, if nothing's going to change, why waste my breath? I'm going to stop kidding myself about this this prayer thing. It simply doesn't work. Now, my guess is, that every Christ follower at one time or another has slowed down in their prayers because life was good, or they felt shame or guilt over something they had done, or they just became utterly disillusioned by the whole process. Well, if you've ever been there, or maybe, maybe, maybe by some chance, you walked in here today and that's where you're at. I want to point us to an absolutely great story that Jesus tells us right at the beginning of Luke 18. In this story, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell you and he's going to tell me why we should persist in prayer. In fact, he tells us this story to encourage us to persist in prayer through thick and thin, in good times and bad times, but especially when we're discouraged and disillusioned. Let's listen to what he says, starting in Luke 18, verse 1. Luke begins this with what we call an editorial comment. He says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable or a story to show them that they should always pray and not give up. In other words, Luke's setting the stage. He's saying, here's why Jesus is going to tell this story that I'm going to relate to you in the next few verses. He wants you to persist in prayer and never, ever, ever give up on prayer. And now we go into the story. Look at verses 2 and following. This is Jesus speaking. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about people. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. Well, for some time he refused. Finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about people, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Well, as we see in the story, it revolves around two characters. Uh, The first character is the judge. Now, let's notice here how Jesus describes him. Uh, He doesn't fear God. He doesn't care a lick about people. He's mean. He's ruthless. He's spiteful. He is not somebody you want to offend. He's not somebody you want to toy with. He looks at the needs of people who come into his court, and he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a hoot. People in his courtroom are simply interruptions, their problems, their headaches, their hassles. And the sooner he can dispose of them, the better. Enter the second character, the widow. Now we need to note here, she is not a Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis type of widow. In our culture today, in the early 21st century in America, widows can be wealthy and very, very powerful. They can own and run their own businesses. 
They can hire and fire employees by the hundreds. They can build investment portfolios in the millions and millions of dollars. But in first century Israel, widows were more often than not uneducated, poor, unemployed, and devoid of any power, any influence whatsoever. Uh, This widow that Jesus is describing here was an unfortunate, dependent, powerless, social outcast. She was the first century equivalent, and I use the phrase reluctantly, a bag lady. And apparently she's being hassled by some villain, and she has no legal means whatsoever to protect herself or defend herself. She's in a desperate, helpless, and hopeless situation. Are we getting the drama in the story? I mean, we have this widow who has no power and she's being oppressed by some kind of a predator. And so she's forced to appeal to a judge whose license plate reads Godfather, who has zero concern for her or for anybody else. And so I think we'd be right to think, why would she waste what little time and little energy she has with him? I mean, after all, he doesn't care. He'll never give her the time of day, let alone justice. But she realizes she has no recourse, no power as she goes into court. And she pleads, your honor, please help me, defend me against this villain. And the judge looks at her, and he smirks to himself, and he says, get her out of here. But this is where, this is where the plot thickens. She knows she only has one option And so she leverages it to the max. She says to herself, listen, I don't have any other recourse than to bug the judge to death. I'm going to be on him like a shirt. I'll follow him wherever he goes. I'm going to follow him to his house, to the bar, to the racetrack. And he's either going to give me what I want or he's going to have me killed. But either way, my problem will then be solved. So she persists in pestering him. Every morning, she shows up outside the courthouse, and as he walks in, she begs him on her hands and knees for his help. In the evening, when he leaves, there she is, crying and pleading, and she's not going to leave him alone. And after a few weeks, this starts to annoy him. It starts to bug him. It starts to get on his nerves. He starts to do whatever he can to avoid her, going this way or that way, but he can't seem to get away from her. And finally, he can't take it anymore. And finally, he calls in one of his clerks, and he tells the clerk, listen, I do not care what it takes. You get her problem solved today. She's killing me. And so the widow, she finally, she finally gets justice against her adversary. So what's the moral of the story that Jesus is telling here? Well, I would guess that maybe after an initial reading, we might say it pays to pester 
I mean, in verse 6, Jesus tells us, as the hearers, as the readers, listen to what the unjust judge says. Well, some people operate by pestering, don't they? I mean, they pester at home, they pester at work, they pester their spouse, they pester their kids. They get their way by wearing everybody around them down. When I was in college, there was a guy that I knew, and he was a pre-med major. And if you're a pre-med or a pre-dental major, and you want to go to medical school or you want to go to dental school, they tell you on the front end, you cannot get anything lower than a B. If you get a C, you are done. No chance of getting in whatsoever. Well, this guy was pretty good in chemistry, and he was pretty good in math. He was pretty good in biology, but he was horrible in physics. And so when he was taking physics, he kept scoring in the C level and sometimes in the B level, and he knew if he didn't get at least a B minus, he was done for. No hope for med school. And so what he began to do was pester the professor, began to bug him, meet with him in his office, bother him after class, tell him that actually the papers he turned in, the scores he got on his test were better than the professor was giving him. He just bugged the professor to death. And finally, on the last day of the semester, the professor kicked the guy out of his office and he says, I'm going to give you a B minus and get the heck out of my office. I don't ever want to see you again. That's how some people operate in life. But is pestering God what this story that Jesus tells here in Luke 18 all about? I mean, are we able to wear down the sovereign ruler of the universe so that he'll eventually give us what we want? Is that how he works? Well, some people have thought that. And so they've interpreted this story that Jesus told as saying that you and I are like the widow and God is like the unjust judge. But friends, that's not at all what Jesus is teaching here. This is what we call a parable or a story of opposites. God's the very opposite of this judge. He's nothing at all like the unjust judge. He's righteous and just and holy and tender, responsive and sympathetic. He wants you and me to talk to him every day on a consistent basis because he deeply, deeply, deeply cares about us. And you and I are the very opposite of this poor, socially marginalized widow. I mean, she's helpless. She has no one to defend her. She's all alone. She has no relationship to the judge at all. And that's the very opposite of you and me if we know Jesus. We are God's chosen children. We're his top priority. We have immediate and intimate access to him any time we want. When I was growing up, my dad worked for Continental Oil Company, or as we say, Conoco. And he was in a middle management position, and his office was 
downtown in downtown Denver. And this was way, way, way back in the day when they used to have switchboards. And to get a hold of my dad through the normal system of telephone communication, you would have to call the main number, and then you would have to give the operator the extension you wanted to get to the person that you were trying to connect with. But my dad had a direct line to his desk. And to my knowledge, the only people who had that direct number for that direct line were his boss, my mom, my sister, and me. In other words, my dad said, if you need to talk to me, call me on the direct line. And I would do that on occasion. And whenever I did, he was always really, really, really glad to hear from me. Because I was his son. And he loved me. Now listen, listen, listen. That's how you are with your kids. That's how you are with your grandkids. You give them your cell phone number. You want them to call you or text you anytime they want because you love them. You care about them. You want to hear from them. You want to talk with them. Friends, Jesus comes to us here in this story. And he tells us to persist in prayer in good times, bad times, through thick and thin. Because our Heavenly Father cares deeply, deeply, deeply about us. We can go to Him anytime about anything because we are His deeply beloved children. I don't know how many of you here ever watch 60 Minutes on Sunday night. It's kind of staple fare for Melanie and I on Sunday nights. We just love it. But a couple of years ago on Sunday, on 60 Minutes on Sunday night, they did this deal where they talked about the Hubble you know, telescope out there in space, and it had started to break down, so they sent some astronauts up there to fine-tune it and correct it. And after they did that, they were showing some of the images that the Hubble was sending back to Earth of the universe. And the universe is huge and expanding. It's going bigger and bigger, and it's filled with millions and millions of galaxies and billions and billions of stars, and these pictures were just amazing. And as I watched that, I thought, our God, the God that you and I serve, the reason we're here today, that God, that God made all of that, and he's outside of both space and time And he loves you, and he loves me deeply, and he proved that in Jesus. And because he loves us so much and cares about us so much, he can deal with us individually anytime he wants. And so therefore, we should always go to him in good times and bad times through thick and thin. So instead of giving up on prayer, instead of slowing down in prayer, instead of getting waylaid by prayer bumps. Uh, Jesus tells us here in this story to be unceasingly persistent in our prayers because our Heavenly Father loves us and cares about us and always, always, always wants to hear from us. Now, a lot of you here this morning are going, yes, Scott, I agree with that. And some of you are sitting here, and we should just be honest about this. Some of you are going, well, yeah, mentally that sounds pretty good, but emotionally I I just don't believe that. In fact, you're thinking, "Uh, Scott, I've been praying about a health issue, and it has not changed. Uh, 
Scott, I've been praying about my bondage to a particular sin. And yet I'm still not cured. Uh, Scott, I've been praying about my kids or my grandkids coming back to church. And now it looks like they're further away from Jesus than they ever have been before. Well, when we feel like we've been persisting in prayer, and yet in all honesty, it looks like and feels like God's sitting on his hands, that can get really discouraging to you and to me. And so what we do is we slow down, we hit those prayer bumps, and then maybe what we do is we just give up on prayer. And if that wasn't bad enough, listen to what Jesus says next in verses 7 and the first part of verse 8. He says, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? That's you and me. Who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Well, I tell you, he'll see that they'll get justice and quickly. Friends, I think we should be really honest with each other and with the text here. Because this is an amazing statement that Jesus makes. And it's also a very disturbing statement that Jesus makes. Because it almost makes him sound like he's out of touch with our pain or our suffering or our concerns. I mean, this statement that Jesus makes here raises some questions and doubts in our minds. I mean, we say things like, well, Jesus, if the Father cared about me as much as you've tried to communicate in this story, how come my prayers for my health or my sin, or my family, or my job haven't been answered. Scott, why is there so much delay of justice that Jesus seems to be promising here? Well, those are really, really good questions. And I want to suggest to you that they can be partially, not fully, partially answered from this text. So let me do my best to communicate that. First of all, what we need to realize is God may be really, really, really pleased with our prayers, but his timing is different from ours, and so what we need to do is persist in prayer and not give up, recognizing that he defines quickly different than you and I do. See, from our perspective and our experience, it may look like and feel like he's avoiding us or he's ignoring us, but what we need to remember is that in the long run, in the end, because he's sovereign and he loves us and cares about us, he is working things out for our good. Let me illustrate this from my own experience. Uh, Melanie and I are just about to celebrate our 10th anniversary, and if you come up and meet Melanie, uh, you'll notice that she looks a lot younger than me, and you would be right to make that conclusion because she is. Now, don't ask me how much younger I'm not going to tell you other than to say she's a lot younger than me. Now, what you probably don't know is 36 years ago, 
I went through a really painful divorce. Wasn't what I wanted, but it happened, and it was very, very painful. And so from that time, clear up to about 10 years ago when we got married, I was praying fairly consistently on and off to get remarried, and it never seemed to happen until Melanie showed up. But just imagine, just imagine, if 36 years ago, when I was going through my divorce, imagine if the Lord showed up to me that day, and he said, Scott, I know you're really hurting. I know this isn't what you want, but I want you to trust me. Scott, I've got the perfect girl for you. Really, Lord? Yeah, she's perfect. Lord, tell me about her. Well, she's got brown hair. She lives 1,200 miles away, and she's in the fifth grade. Think about it. Sometimes, sometimes the Lord comes to us and he says, your prayers are great. I want you to keep praying. Keep dialing in. Your prayer is really, really good. But you need to trust me because I'm running things in the universe. I'm on my own time frame. I will work it all out for good. And it's going to take time. In the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through the prophet says, My thoughts are not your your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. God may be delaying his answer because he's working things out for your good. See, Jesus comes to us in this parable and he tells you and me, Don't give up on prayer. Persist in prayer. And trust that God will answer your prayer in his time and his way because he knows what is best. Now there's a second reason God may be delaying the specific answer to our prayers. And this is because he's trying to nurture and build faith in us. Faith is really, really, really big to God. It's huge in his economy. He wants us to be people of great faith. And so sometimes he delays things in order to develop that in us. Look at the question that Jesus asks at the end of verse 8. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, this is where our scripture reading before the sermon out of Luke 17 comes into play. Jesus told this story about us persisting in prayer following this long discourse he gave to the disciples on the second coming. And Jesus tells them, and he tells us, before he returns, that's going to be a really, really difficult time on planet earth like the days of Noah before the flood like the days of Lot before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in those days faith was really tested and not very visible friends one of the things you and I need to realize about the God that we serve the God that you serve the God that I serve is that he delays answering our prayers Or he answers them differently than we think he should because he's trying to strengthen our faith in him and how good he is and how sovereign he is. A person 
who is praying consistently, especially when life is difficult or dicey, is somebody whose faith is growing in the Father, and the Father looks down at that and he says, that's exactly what I want. They're growing and developing in their faith. Friends, you know this and so do I. Sometimes life gets really, really hard. So when life gets hard and it feels like God is not listening, what God says is, I want to see you on your knees, knocking on the doors of heaven. Because that's a great picture of the fact that you are now growing and maturing and developing in your faith. So if by some chance you walked in here this morning and you are in a hard place, and life is difficult or life is dicey, Jesus comes to us here and he says, don't you dare quit praying. Instead, he says to us, I want you to persist in prayer and let that strengthen your faith in the Father who loves you and who will provide for you in his time and in his way. Uh, Let me try to show us why we want to persist in prayer. Uh, I know that your walk with the Lord is different than my walk with the Lord. God deals with each of us individually. And I know I've been a pastor long enough now and a Christian long enough now to know that your experience with the Lord is oftentimes different than my experience with the Lord. And our experiences oftentimes don't overlap. And I get that. But if you don't mind, I want to tell you about one experience I've had that has really, really, really encouraged me to persist in my prayers, even when it looks and feels like God is not doing a doggone thing. About 30 years ago, and I do mean this, it was back in the late 80s, I started to pray for my sister Becky to come to Christ. Uh, In a lot of ways, she had a very difficult life for a lot of different reasons. But her main issue, her biggest issue, was she did not know Jesus in a personal way. And so I started to pray for her regularly and consistently that she'd come to know the Lord. And I didn't see anything, and I mean that, anything happen for years. And there were times, I'm going to be honest with you, I'd get really discouraged. And I'd think, well, Lord, obviously you're not doing anything with her. I mean, she seems further away from you now than she was even five years ago. But I'm a stubborn German, and I come across a text like what Jesus is teaching us here in Luke 18. I'd say, okay, Lord, I'm just going to be a stubborn German. I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to keep praying. Then, back in early 2004, uh, some friends of mine and I started a little church called Aspen Grove Community Church. And we all committed ourselves to asking family members and friends and neighbors to come to worship, especially our family, neighbors, and friends and co-workers who didn't know the Lord. On Easter Sunday, April 18, 2004, we had this great worship service down at this building down in Littleton. And we had a delicious brunch for all the adults and we had games for the kids. And we had about 175 people come 
many of them were unbelievers, and it was an absolutely great, great morning. I mean, I was so pumped. I was the last one to leave that building that morning, and I walked out into the parking lot, and my sister, who had come to the surface, was out there standing next to her car. I mean, everybody else had pretty much left, and so I walked out to the car, and she's standing next to the car, and she's crying. And I thought, I didn't think the sermon was that bad, you know. And I said, are you all right? And she goes, through her tears, she said, church was great. The music was great. The people were great. She just had a great experience, and she wanted to come back. And she did. And not only did she come back, but she got increasingly involved in our church. And it was really, really obvious over the next couple of years that the Lord had touched her heart because she eventually became an integral part of the church. She started to grow spiritually and she started to serve regularly. And even though she was on a very fixed income, she started to give consistently. Just about a year and a half ago, my sister's health went south very quickly and we had to put her in the ICU in the hospital. And I was up there with her when she passed from this life into the loving arms of the Savior, Jesus. And eight days later, we had a memorial service for her at a small church over in southeast Denver that Pastor John led, and he did a fantastic job. I thought it was a really, really good service. John did a great job. The music was good. We had some good testimonies. I thought it properly honored my sister, and I thought it really glorified the Lord. But as I sat in the front row during that memorial service, I started to think, Lord, I am so grateful that you did not let me give up on praying for Becky. Because, Lord, this is a testimony to your faithfulness, your grace, what you will do when your people pray. That took a long time. But the God you and I serve is great, and He is faithful. So maybe you came in here today, and there is something you are really, really, really wrestling with. It's really painful. It's really hard. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's a moral situation. Maybe it's a relational situation. You know what's going on in your life right now. Friends, Jesus comes to you, and He comes to me. And he says, don't you dare give up on prayer. Instead, you persist in prayer day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out. And the reason why he tells us to do that is because we are the dearly, dearly beloved children of our Father. And he will always, in his time and in his way, do what's best for us. Let me ask you to join your heart with mine as we pray to that great God. Father, I just pray that this morning, wherever we are at, whatever circumstance of life, whatever situation we're at, good, bad, indifferent, 
that you would just show us how much you love us and that you know what's best. And we ask this in Jesus' name.